Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. We're going to begin our morning with a missions moment from Andrew Silbert. On behalf of my wife this morning, she's at home with two very sick little girls. So she is the uh, chair of the Partners at Home Committee, um, and that is um, who this missions moment is brought to you by. Uh, One part of the mission of our church is to focus on the needs that exist right here in our community. Partners at Home is a ministry that's been around for a long time, but not always under that name. We're a group that's dedicated to trying to improve the daily lives of those in need right here in our congregation and also in the community around us. The need is often hard to see because it doesn't always look like this. And our own lives, our own busy lives, often sometimes look like this, or resemble this. Uh, although it, it's not an intentional oversight, uh, we don't always see the need around us, but it is a reality that affects more people near and dear to us than we realize. As a committee, we have recently been restructuring and organizing our efforts to become a more effective and active group. In doing so, we have developed an ambitious ministry called the GRACE Project, uh, which stands for Giving, Restoring, advocating, caring, and engaging. Since the introduction of Project Grace in October, we have helped community and church members with food, broken water pipes, heating issues, preparations for winter, vehicle repairs and registrations, utility bills, and rent expenses. Applications for help come in almost daily. We have also initiated a foster care closet under Project Grace, which is a loan closet for foster care families. Sometimes when there is a child placed in a foster home, it happens very suddenly without much warning. Living where we do, it can be difficult to prepare with barely any notice. Uh, The foster care closet allows people to donate items that will be loaned out to foster care families for these situations until they have time to adjust accordingly. On a similar note, we've also begun a backpack program uh, for foster care children. Again, in some situations, placement can be immediate. Um, and some of these children aren't even able to go home and collect uh, some personal items. So with the backpack program, we've begun collecting donated backpacks and filling them with basic necessities and a few personal items that kids can call their own, which can make a, a big difference uh, in a new place. We're working with the county directly 
uh, with this ministry so when there's a child placed, uh, the county has access to whatever bags they need. We've also begun our Daily Bread Initiative in cooperation with Fillmore Central School. Roughly 30% of Fillmore students identified by the school do not have sufficient amounts of food when they go home for extended weekends or breaks. Since November, we have filled and sent into the school 360 brown bags filled with food that can help sustain students throughout breaks and long weekends. And speaking of food, the food pantry is also a very active ministry that falls under Partners at Home. In the past month, we've helped more than 12 families and have had four more requests sent in for assistance. People make use of the food pantry for a variety of reasons. Some have long-term financial problems, but some are just folks in our community who need a little extra help. Uh, The food pantry is a very active part of uh, the Partners at Home ministry. The Benevolent Fund also falls under Partners at Home. This fund aids our ability to be active in some of these different areas. Without an active Benevolent Fund, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. In John 13, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our goal as the Partners of Home Committee, uh, Partners of Home Committee, is to help our church be this kind of love to each other and to the community around us. As you see, there's lots to do, and there's lots more than what we're able to do at this time. But with your help, hopefully we can continue to grow as a committee, continue to care for some who may be sitting right next to us this morning. If you're interested in becoming involved in Partners at Home, our contact information is in the bulletin, um, and we'd love to have you join us. Thank you for your time this morning.
You are good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. People from every nation and tongue, from generation to generation, we Thank you. 
by his stripes we are healed by his nail pierced hands we're free by his blood we're washed clean now we have the victory the power of sin is broken Jesus overcame it all. He has won our freedom. Jesus has won it all.
Father, we praise you, we worship you as the risen King of all. In Christ, our sins are not only forgiven, but we're given life. And we praise you and honor you, glorify you. We thank you, Father, that you are concerned about everything in our lives. All the struggles, the burdens, the uncertainties, anxiety, fear. All of it, Lord, is in your hands. We pray today for people who are grieving and the pain and heartache of that. We pray for all who are struggling with illness and issues with uh, these fragile bodies. We pray for your healing. We pray, Father, for each of us as we think about what the future holds and that you would give us faith to trust you in each, of the, each, each moment. Father, we pray for our nation, for the leaders of our nation, In this time where there is a lot of divisiveness and uncertainty and and struggle, we pray that you will give to the leaders of our nation at all the levels of government wisdom and the ability to do what honors you. And help us as a nation to think about your desires and your heart, your mind. And Father, we pray for not only this country, but the countries of the world. We thank you. That, that Jesus has come for the whole world. And we, we celebrate thinking about the day when people from every tribe and language and nation and race will gather in the new heaven and the new earth of your kingdom and celebrate who you are and worship you. And Father, thinking of that day, we want to be agents of reconciliation and healing in your world this day. We pray, Father, that your grace would be evident in our world through your church, your people. We thank you for people like John and Carolyn Miller who've given their lives to serve you in other places of the world so that people can have not only the scriptures in their own language, but also experience life with you. We thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who who hold firm to the faith in the midst of opposition and persecution. We think of the work of open doors in Syria and how they're working with wives and mothers particularly to help them in these very difficult circumstances to keep their family learning of you and knowing you and in many ways surviving. We pray for refugees around the world ask that you would bring peace where there's war and violence and opposition. Father, thank you for your grace at work in this whole world. May our hearts continue to be open and stirred and sensitive to the needs of our world that our hearts would reflect your heart. We pray all of this through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 
1 through 6 and verse 16 through 18. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Word of the Lord. things to you uh, as we continue in worship. Um, next Sunday uh, is the day we are collecting uh, the funds we've raised for the Matthew 820 initiative to help refugees. So if you are part of this, uh, if you've been collecting money in the jars, dollar a week, bring those next week. We'll collect them. And uh, be, we're going to bring an end to that project, at least at this time, uh, next week. If you forget next week, we'll be collecting them over the next few weeks. But next week is the end of that. And also, I just want to remind you, uh, college students, young adults, we're starting a Sunday school class. started last week. This is the second week uh, over in the uh, Chris Education Building. So if you go across the parking lot into the office structure just down the hall to your right, uh, class there, fellowship, discussion, prayer, sharing, love to have you be a part of that as we, uh, we gather at 11 o'clock. That will take place right after this service. Uh, I also wanted to uh, just take a moment and introduce our speaker this morning, Carolyn Payne Miller uh, has uh, been a long time a part of this church. Uh, she and her husband John are probably the, the longest standing supported missionaries of this church, uh, going out in the uh, early 60s to Southeast Asia, where they have spent virtually all of their uh, married life working with Wycliffe Bible Translators and uh, SIL, an uh, arm of Wycliffe Bible Translators. They uh, worked among the Brew people in Vietnam. Uh, also worked in other countries. They've lived in Thailand. They've had a variety of leadership roles, uh, including Carolyn, uh, the chair of the board of SIL, uh, for a few years. And they have been uh, just active in translating the scriptures to a variety of language groups and helping with that. And uh, we are we are excited to have them here and uh, have Carolyn here to speak. They're living here in Houghton now, retired here, though not really retired. I know they're still working on some projects even from here. But we're excited to have her here this morning to share with us about the, the importance of the scriptures in the, in the language, uh, in the heart language uh, of uh, people around the world. Before she comes to speak, let me invite you to take a moment and share a greeting with others who are here in worship today. Uh, just share a word of uh, greeting. We're going to extend that just a little bit as well. So uh, find someone you don't know, introduce yourself as we greet together.
morning. Wasn't that good music this morning? I heard it last service, but it's just as good the second time. I owe a great debt of gratitude to this church, to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. When I was a child, my parents brought me here every Sunday morning and Sunday evening. We sat right over there in the front because my folks figured that children behave better and listen better if they're up in the front. All through my years of schooling at the little two-room country school down here on the main road, then at Houghton Academy and Houghton College, this was my church home. And then when I left for Vietnam to marry John, this church sent me off. And later, they welcomed us back from Vietnam when we were released from prison with a big parade. After that, we served in the Philippines, Malaysia, Laos, Thailand, and the people of Houghton Church prayed for us and supported us financially. There's no way I could adequately express my appreciation for this church. Our service, as the pastor noted, has been with the Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics. Uh, Some of you may know about these organizations. The two organizations have worked closely together for the last 75 years. Wycliffe U.S. is part of the Wycliffe Global Alliance, which is a network of organizations all over the world, really, many countries, that recruit people and help them to get support, prayer and financial support, to do Bible translation work around the world. SIL is an organization of more than 5,500 people coming from over 60 countries that trains and administers these people as they serve around the world in other countries in language development, multilingual education, and Bible translation. SIL has conducted linguistic analysis of more than 2,900 languages, I'm told, spoken by 1.7 billion people in nearly 100 countries. Our own roles in the organization have been varied and have taken us to many parts of the world. We've been involved in language learning and translation, We've also been involved in teacher training, preparation of education materials, in university teaching, in writing linguistic articles, developing dictionaries, um, in doing language survey in some parts of the world. We've served as administrators, and I also served as the pastor noted on the International Board of Directors. All of this has been with the aim of serving language communities that are without the word of God in their mother tongue. During the more than 55 years that we have been serving, we've seen immense changes. Changes in the world, in the areas where we've been living and working, as well as changes in our own country. Particularly as it involves people engaged in cross-cultural Christian ministry. The changes in travel and communication 
have made the world a much smaller place. When John left for Vietnam in 1959 by freighter, the trip took more than a month. When I joined him two years later, I went by plane, but it still took several days. We stopped on the West Coast, then in Honolulu, then in Guam, before eventually getting to Vietnam. The only voice communication we had over those two years was by one phone call that John placed at the main Saigon post office, making sure that I would be in Houghton and near the phone at the time. It was to mark our engagement. It wasn't really considered an option that he would come back to the U.S. for the wedding or that our families could go to Vietnam. So I went with my grandmother's wedding dress in my suitcase, and we were married a month after I arrived. The cost of travel in those days was really prohibitive. But over the years, we've seen this change. When we moved out of our Bangkok apartment last year, our neighbors gave me a piece of paper on which I had written our travel plans for the next three months. These involved trips to Indonesia, to Dallas, Texas, to Nairobi, to Manila, to Mumbai, and also trips to Udon and other places within Thailand. The, um, then this last summer, when our grandson was married in California, his parents, the Dodies, who are also serving with Wycliffe in Thailand, very reasonable flights, and came home for the wedding. Email, Skype, instant messaging, host of other means of communication are available so that communication all over the world is possible and is carried out all the time. I get photographs from a Katang pastor in Laos. He shows me how he's how he's doing. And if he has a special prayer request, he sends an instant message. Last Sunday morning, we were getting ready to go to church here, and I received a smartphone message from Sabah, Malaysia. Um, one of our friends there let us know that now, amazingly, the Karazan New Testament in voice recording is available on the internet. The Brew New Testament has been on internet for a couple years now, and soon the whole Brew Bible will be uh, on smartphones all through Laos and Vietnam. So the changes in, in technology have been impressive. In 1962, when we moved into a Brew village in the mountains near the 17th parallel that divided uh, the North and South Vietnam. We lived in a small bamboo and thatch house. Um, there were very few people in the whole district who spoke Vietnamese, and nobody spoke English. There was no school in the village. All the villagers were subsistence rice farmers. Our wind-up reel-to-reel uh, recorder was a 
great hit, very popular, because it could play Brew stories and Brew songs that we had recorded. So people showed up night after night wanting to hear the music, the Brew songs that we had recorded. Our portable typewriter had been adapted to Vietnamese font, but the Brew language had no written form. When we eventually purchased a gas refrigerator, we were able to keep food longer and to enjoy cool drinks. One noon, I remember, after a meal at which we enjoyed cold drinks, we threw the unused ice cubes out the window, the ground beside our house. A bit later, we heard our neighbor calling out to our language helper, Kairu, Kairu, come quick! We rushed to the window and looked down, and there he was, holding an ice cube between two sticks. And he says, it bites, it bites. This new technology was the source of amazement to our brew neighbors, who couldn't really understand why, how you could put a fire under a metal box and get cold things out of it. I have to confess, I don't really understand that either. <laughs> but we enjoyed it. When we lived in Sabah, Malaysia, on the island of Borneo, in the 80s and 90s, our home was in a Karazan village. It's right on the river, at the end of a suspension bridge. Um, the water buffaloes would come under the house. It was up on stilts and water buffaloes would sleep in the shade of our house. But we had electricity and running water of a sort. And while we were living there, they installed a bright red telephone that allowed us to have communication with the rest of the world. At that time, most of the people were rice farmers, but our next door neighbor worked as a plumber in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in the nearby city. Computers made their appearance. Photocopiers, cassette recorders, all were used, we were able to use in our work. Before we left Thailand this last year, we were working in a row of four-story buildings with high-speed internet where people from neighboring countries could come to the center and work on developing their languages. Computer technology had produced tools for editing and sharing materials, for checking translation, for preparing textbooks and adapting materials from one language to another closely related language, thus extending the reach of a translation from one language to another. With all these changes in travel and communication and technology, language communities have become less isolated. There's been more urbanization as people look for jobs in the cities, uh, bilingualism and language shift. Some linguists predict that uh, in, in the recent future, a third of the world's languages will become obsolete. I doubt that it will actually happen that far, because if you've worked in any of these 
communities, you know that not everybody speaks the national language, only a few. But you might ask, is it necessary then to translate the Bible into all these languages? Why can't they use the Bible in the national language or in English? But as I say, when you get to know them, you find out they don't know the national language or English. And even those who do know it find that the word speaks to them much more clearly when it's in their own language. I remember sitting in a Karazan translation committee meeting in Sabah, Malaysia. Several on the committee were elementary school teachers, and they knew both Malay and English. The man reading was a school principal, a catechist in the church, and a translator for Radio Malaysia into Karazan. We were checking the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew as Uncle Peter read the portion about Jesus telling us how to treat our enemies, I heard one of the teachers on my side, left side say to the other, it's not easy to be a Christian, you know. And then when he came to the part where Jesus taught about divorce, he stopped. And he said to the translator, is that what it says? And she said, I think so. He looked across at me, where I was following along in the Greek, and said, is that what it says? I think so, I replied. Is there a problem? He didn't say anything, but he read the verse again. And then he turned and looked at the only single man on the committee and said, you better be careful who you marry. I'm sure he'd read that passage before in English and probably in Malay. But suddenly, when it comes to him in his own language, it, be, it became real. It became something personal. Though changes in travel and communication, technology, have, have made the work easier in many ways, there are, have been changes also that have made the work more difficult for people who want to do Christian ministry, not just translation, but other ministry. Tourists are generally welcome anywhere in the world, as long as they bring money and they spend it in the country. But increasingly, nationalism and strong anti-Christian pressures have made it difficult to get visas to live and work in, in many parts of the world. You may be required to do a job that the government thinks is important for the privilege of living in the country, and it may not be what you had wanted to do or what you felt, feel that the Lord sent you for. Uh, quite often, you'd be required to train someone to take over your play, your work and leave. But that's not easy to do when you're working with people with very little education. Within the American church, there have been changes, too. A recent visit to the Wycliffe Center in Orlando, Florida, uh, we were told that churches nowadays rarely allow a returning missionary or missionaries wanting to go to the field to speak to the whole church. So they, they usually will have maybe a five minutes, two or three times a year, when they will allow people to 
talk about their, their needs. Uh, or they may just have to talk personally to people within the church. But it's difficult in this day and age when costs of living are rising all over the world for, to find the financial support to go out for long-term missionaries as long-term missionaries. Short-term missions has become, in many cases, the norm to the church in the United States. And caught up in the excitement of sending their own young people out on these mission trips, many churches are not interested in supporting those who have longer-term commitments. But you can't learn a language. You can't do language development, and you can't do translation on a two-week mission trip. But at the same time, young people, although they may be more reluctant to make a long-term commitment, those who do have often had these short-term missions experiences at which God has given them the confidence that they can make a difference. They can make it. They can live. When, uh, in sub-churches, too, the translation ministry, the translation of the word is considered to be sort of an optional extra, peripheral, less important than evangelism or church planting. Though how a church is expected to grow and develop or withstand the many, many false teachers and cults that are all over the world without the word in their language, a language that they can understand, I can't imagine. But then there are some things that have not changed. The need hasn't changed, although it has changed in that there are fewer languages without the scriptures now than when we went to Vietnam. But still, according to the latest statistics, there are 1,431 language groups that are still without any scriptures. Many, if not most of these, are minority groups. And because they're minority groups, they are often marginalized because of their language or because of they're racially different, so that they're unable to take advantage of education or opportunities that other citizens can take advantage of. These groups are generally at the bottom, bottom of the ladder socially, economically, and as well as in their own feeling of, of self-worth. They're, they're constantly told that they're inferior and that their languages are useless. They're people who are the least of these, that Jesus told his disciples to share with. The command hasn't changed. The words of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 are still as valid today as they were when the Lord Jesus spoke them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, which in the Greek is all ethne, all ethnic groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
But how can people obey if they don't know or understand what Jesus commanded? Opposition hasn't changed, though we may feel it more keenly in our own society. There's always been opposition. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. He also told the disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Materialism, nationalism, religious pluralism, militant anti-Christian opposition, these are still devices that Satan uses to try to stop the spread of God's word. The response hasn't changed. Even though, as I mentioned, there are many difficulties in, for, to young people in wanting to do the work of Bible translation or Christian ministry of some sort, God continues to call out and to send out those who will give themselves to this ministry. As I traveled to many countries where SIL is working, I was continually amazed at the, the quality of people that God continues to send out to do the work of Bible translation. Many of these have come from Houghton College, and I've been told by a few students that this is something that they would like to be involved in too. These are people who need to be flexible, willing to adapt to changes, but they have committed themselves. Those that I have met around the world have committed themselves to the hard work of learning another language and culture, which is still a hard job. They work in teams that are increasingly cross-cultural, so they have to learn to adapt not only to the culture of the place where they're going, but the many cultures of the people on the team. In the center where we worked in Northeast Thailand, our small team was made up of people from Wycliffe US, Wycliffe Netherlands, Wycliffe Canada, Wycliffe Thailand, Wycliffe Singapore, as well as the many people groups from the, that we were serving. The people that God has called are those who are committed to building relationships and serving governments and local institutions, both the majority and minority languages. They're willing to be accountable to field administration as well as to their home sending constituency. That's sometimes a difficult balance. They operate with transparency and honesty knowing that what they write in their newsletters and what they say on social media may be read by the people where they work as well as by critics of the work that they're doing. They're flexible, willing to take on jobs that they hadn't really expected to do. They have persistence. They're willing to, to hang in there when all the doors seem to be slamming around them. Finally, and most importantly, the power of God's word to change lives has not changed. 
In Isaiah, God says that his word will, be, will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. When we prepared to go to Vietnam and work with the Brew people, I sometimes wondered how would we ever persuade a people who never had the Bible and knew nothing about the Christian faith that the word of God was something that they should be interested in, that it was, in fact, the word of God. But we learned, as Paul also learned in, in, when he went to Thessalonica, that this was something that we didn't need to worry about. It wasn't even our job. Because God's spirit took the word, translated into the brew language, and produced life and faith in those that heard it. We saw it happen in the brew church that still continues to grow, both numerically and spiritually, despite the hardship and the difficulties that they face on a daily basis. God's word is still living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Several years ago, we had the opportunity to go back after 43 years to visit the village in Vietnam where we had started our work. It was a very short visit. We were allowed to be there for two days in the area. Um, and we had Vietnamese security police watching every move. But we were able, we, we slept in the district center, in the, the central area. But the next day, we went out to the village. Um, they took us up the hill where we saw a... a school, for preschool for children. Um, the New Testament had been available by that time for about 30 years. And the people, the church in the village gathered together in the small church that had been built by the village to greet us and share with us. It was a very emotional time, as you can imagine, as they shared their lives with us and we shared with them what had been going on in our lives. Later, we went back to the district center to where a Vietnamese pastor had invited leaders from some 20, 23, I think, villages in house churches throughout the Brew area to come and meet with us. It was exciting to see what God had done, to see the growth of the church in that area. Uh, smartphones were very much in evidence, and everybody wanted their picture taken with us. A few months before we left Thailand for the U.S. this past spring, I was standing in the, right in the area where the coffee pot was in the uh, center in northeast Thailand where we'd been working. The center there had representatives from five or six languages. They come and they go. They can only come for a month at a time. But the open door for the Southeast Asian nations allows them to come to Thailand and stay for a month. On the staff there are a number of brew young people. Um, I was listening at a distance to two of our brew co-workers who were discussing what our work had meant to their people as a whole. One was a brew pastor 
who had trained in Saigon, but he had come to the center to help John in the completion of a brew dictionary. The other was a young man who had finished university and now was working to help tr to do translation in a closely related language to his own. One was a son and the other a grandson of people that we had worked with very closely when we were in Vietnam before the communist takeover. They were discussing how our work had affected their people. They said that the fact that the Brew people have their language in writing and are recognized by the government as being a people who have a written language has brought dignity and a sense of worth, not just to the believers, but to the whole people group. And they said that having the whole of God's word has brought Christian faith to so many of the Brew villages and to so many people that the government has given up trying to eradicate it. They've been forced to accept that Christian faith is a part of the cultural tradition of the Brew. I stood in the background and marveled that God had given us the privilege of seeing how he's caused his word to be fruitful in the Brew Church. During the time we were in prison in Vietnam, interrogators were always trying to figure out who had sent us and what our motivation was for being there. I remember one session in which I shared very clearly with the interrogator that I believed in God, it was my faith in God and my belief that the Bible was God's word that had given me the desire to share it with others. The interrogator said, well, you don't know that there's a God, but you believe. And I agreed that this was so. Because you believe, he said, you've taught the brew people about this God, and some of them have believed. They don't know if there's a God, but they have believed. And again, I nodded, said, they'll remember you. Every time they see their language in writing, they'll remember you. And every time they read the Bruce scripture, they will remember you. At first I thought, is he trying to encourage me or what? But then I realized that he was pointing out my crime. Because he went on to say, not only will these people remember you, but they will tell their children about you. And their children will tell their children, and it will be many years before the effects of what you have done will be able to be undone. I was kind of shaken, actually. I went back to the room and said, told John what the man had said. And John's response was, well, praise the Lord. He's right, you know. And he said, that's a pretty good testimonial to the, to the effectiveness of, of our work. But how little we expected at that time that God would give us the privilege of meeting and actually working with some of our spiritual grandchildren. Some time ago, a Brew believer wrote to us and also to those who had sent us, because he knew that there were people behind us. So this is what he said. Now, the people 
who are in the group of Jesus Christ our Lord, every one of them knows this. If you drink water, you remember the person who dug the well. If you eat fruit, you remember the person who planted the tree. In this same way, we never forget the labor that you, our brothers and sisters, expended pouring out your lives for the souls of the brew. But I don't know what we can do to repay this very great labor. We can only bow before the Lord in thanks and pray great blessings from the Lord to be poured out on you, our brothers and sisters. I can't think of any more fulfilling way to spend your life than in giving a group of people who doesn't have it God's word in their own language. Thank you. Please stand as we sing together. As we sing, the ushers will also be coming forward to take the offering.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.